Hello, I'm Joel McLeod. And I'm Roland Tanner. This is the 905er. This marks our 20th episode of the 905er. It is also the week of Remembrance Day. And as such, we are straying somewhat from the beaten path for this week's episodes. As many of you are aware, Roland and I are pretty outspoken about a number of issues. Uh, wherever you lie on the political spectrum, you have to agree the fact that we are able to have these discussions at all are owed to previous generations. We owe a lot to the men and women and the civilians who gave up their lives in, the def in defense of the freedoms that we enjoy today. In that spirit, we wanted to focus this week's episodes on two institutions headquartered here in the 905 region, whose missions are to preserve, protect, and promote Canada's history and the veterans' stories of the First and Second World Wars. Today, we speak with Dave Rohr, CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum in Hamilton, Ontario, about their role in preserving this legacy, the challenges they are facing due to COVID-19, and what we can do to help them keep going. Thursday's episode, we will speak with Alex Black of the Juno Beach Center, headquartered in Burlington. Please have a listen. I'd like to thank Dave Roher, who is the CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, situated in Hamilton, Ontario. Dave, thank you for coming on the 905er. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you today, Joel and uh, Roland. I'm glad to chat with you. Great. Um, you know what? Why don't we just talk about the vision that the Warplane Museum has in terms of uh, maintaining Canada's legacy uh, of the First and Second World Wars, the Korean Wars, and our peacekeeping, as well as our most recent endeavors in, in Afghanistan, and just how you, you picture the Warplane's mission in relation to all of that. Well, you know, I, I've been involved at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum uh, for 20 21 years now. I started as a volunteer chief pilot and uh, then became CEO and uh, president in 2005. And it's been an honor to be associated with this uh, museum. And I've told the staff, and we have a small staff, a full-time staff of about 22. We're not funded by the government. We're a stand on our own two feet type of a business, which, which is actually a blessing to us, particularly uh, given this year's challenges. Uh, that we've learned the business acumen of running a museum because what, what my assessment is is after 21 years that the museum business, unless funded by governments or large corporations or, or mainline sponsors, is not a viable business in and of itself in terms of paying all the bills, particularly when you're Canada's flying museum and you have all the overhead and the capital expenses of aircraft and then the operation expenses and the maintenance expenses and and all those things that are added to flying vintage airplanes. But I tell our staff, and I have told them on a consistent basis, that every day at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum is Remembrance Day. That's what we're about. That's lest we forget. Uh, to tell the story of the duty, the service, and the sacrifice of all those who have served our country, fallen in the service to our country with the supreme sacrifice and all those who are currently serving our country and preserving our way of life and our values and our ethics and and our freedoms and uh, so it's a very special mission for us and uh, to be able to showcase uh, uh you know airplanes that have been flown by canadians whether by the royal canadian navy or in the royal canadian air force or even in allied services it is very important to us and uh it's one of those things that you know nobody works at a museum uh for the money <laughs> they work 
they work there because uh, there is a love and there's a genuine uh, interest in, in preserving that history. And, and I think it's even more important as time goes on because, you know, I was out this morning briefly and uh, I was disappointed, to be honest with you, how many people are not wearing a poppy. You know, uh, it's important that we pass that message on to new and young Canadians alike, as well as maybe some older Canadians that have forgotten the importance of it, that we, we need to remember that sacrifice. You know, in Bomber Command, of course, we're honoured to have the only and the last flying Canadian to Lancaster. And we're honoured as a country to have been the only country outside the UK to build Lancaster. 7,377 were built, half didn't survive the war. 430 were built in Canada of a contract of 500 when the war ended in Europe in May 8th, 1945. And to be able to have the last flying Canadian built Lancaster, one of two left in the world flying, is such an honour to remember all those men and women that built Lancasters at Victory Aircraft at the site of Pearson Airport, as well as all those Canadians that went to Bomber Command and flew in the service uh, of, uh, you know, uh, with the Allies in World War II. And, you know, we lost 168 people in Afghanistan, if you put it in context with civil servants and perhaps some contractors, and uh, in 14 years uh, in in Bomber Command alone, of the 120,000-plus that served, uh, the Allies made up one-third of that group. 55,573 didn't come home. Uh, that's not to count the ones that were shot down and taken prisoner of war or injured. Th- those are the ones that didn't, subvert, didn't survive their 30 operational missions, didn't come home. And 10,695 of those were young Canadians in the prime of their life. And... And that's just one segment of, of that effort. And so uh, that that's what that airplane means to me, uh, is to, to showcase and, and to remember. And on Wednesday next week, when we fly over the Golden Horseshoe, I hope people, when they see that airplane, will realize what, what it means. And, you know, when we took the airplane over to Europe, uh, Europe England in 2014 to fly with the only other flying Lancaster owned by the Royal Air Force and Battle of Britain, memorial flight at RAF Coningsby. Uh, after we did all our checkouts and, and we were authorized to fly formation for the for the seven weeks and 65 events we did with the Royal Air Force, the uh, we went to, we were in bomber country, and uh, which is what it was called, where all the bombers were located in World War II. And we went to a pub, the Bluebell Pub, and it was a building that's 1,200 years old and 700 years has been a pub. And Lancaster crew's names were on the ceiling, and in the beams that were on the ceiling, there were coins in the, in the beams. And after a pint or two, you know, we asked the bartender, why, what were the significance of those coins? And what it was was that if you were a crewman in bomber command and, and you had a mission and then you came home, you know, in the middle of the morning, the middle of the night, and you, you debriefed your mission and, and then you... Uh, went and had breakfast and maybe had a rest and you might might not be going out that night you might get up in the after, late afternoon and you'd go to the pub for a pint and when you bought your pint you'd get your change and the crews what they would do is stick the change in the coin in the beams so that when they came back the next night or the next night after that they'd have money in the bar and those coins the the owners of those coins never came back and it just really uh, was a poignant moment for us to remember just what it was all about. So our role, you know, is it, 
we, we embrace our mission as a privilege and an honor to be part of it, and, uh, and it is. Um, you're talking about flying the, the Lancaster and the, and the pointing scene. I was just talking with Roland before the interview started. Roland and I live in Burlington, so we quite frequently we hear the Lancaster flying overhead. And I was sharing a story with Roland about, I was outside with my dad. This is last year before the pandemic. <laughs> um, I, I was outside with my dad, and we are just chatting, and we could hear this the sound in the distance. And I said, oh, it's the Lancaster. Okay. You know, you look up in the air, and you see the Lancaster fly overhead. And I said to my, my dad afterwards, so, my God, that was loud. It was just this loud, powerful engine. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. Why not? And waiting a second, it clicked in my head. I said, what if I was on the ground in Germany in the Second World War and I heard that sound coming overhead multiplied by hundreds? And I thought that would be terrifying to me if I was just a regular civilian, terrifying, because I know that that sound is coming and it's dropping death and destruction on me and my home. And then you flip that around, you say, well, what if you were a civilian in London during the Blitz and you heard the Luftwaffe coming as well? It was one of those things that it really is a powerful noise. And if you just take that moment, transport yourself 80 years ago into somebody's shoes on the ground in London or in, in Hamburg, Germany or, or wherever, you get a sense of just the terrifying nature of war. I mean, maybe I'm being a bit poetic here, but I do think it's, it's a very apt monument to the memory of, of what that experience was like, both for the soldier as well as for the civilian on the ground. You know, you're absolutely right, Joel. And, and uh, you know, I think it's a very important distinction in, in what we do uh, to remember that no one wants to glorify armed conflict or war. It, it's really the failure of, of uh, humankind to avoid that type of settlement of differences. And, and you hope uh, that we will reach a state at some point in time where, where, where we don't have to be engaged in armed conflict. So our role, it's important that we, we get send the right message because we, we don't want to glorify that failure uh, of you, humankind. But what we do want to do is we want to remember the service and the duty and the sacrifice because... You know whether whether it was you or I or or, or our sons or daughters, uh, that generation in the prime of their lives were asked by their country uh, to go into service and, and to go into harm's way, and they did, and they did their job, uh, and it was in a conflict that none of them had any making in or, or creation of, but they took their role on and they did their job, and at a very high price, obviously, and and it's that. It's that heritage that's so important to us because God help us that we're not called into it again. But as the history of the world has taught us, uh, whether whether it's uh, World War One, which was to be the war to end all wars, and then of course in 1940, 1939, here we are 20 years later in, in World War Two, uh, Korean conflict in 1950, Afghanistan, uh, Bosnia Herzegovina. Uh, and of course, uh, you know some of the peacekeeping uh, missions in Africa uh, that were, you know, uh, traumatic. So, I mean, obviously, we've got to do better as a as a human race, <laughs> hopefully, uh, to learn. But but in the meantime, we can't let that heritage. Uh, we we can't forget that heritage because, you know, it has been said that those who do not know history are condemned to repeat it, and and. Uh, I spoke about that last year at Remembrance Day, as a matter of fact. And, and so for, for new Canadians, for young Canadians, and for 
uh, my generation who, although I served in the Rokane Air Force, I never was in conflict. I was never in armed conflict, and, and I'm thankful that that was the case. But uh, there are a number my age, you know, even the Canes my age, and we need to remember uh, – and what did that greatest generation do when they came back from World War II? They, they came back. They didn't talk about it. Uh, there was no such thing as PTSD. There was no, there was no uh, uh, treatment, really, for them. They, many of them came back, uh, whether they were wounded physically, they, they were wounded from being subjected to that uh, uh, dehumanization of war. And yet they came back and they, they, they raised families. They built a country and... and uh, prevailed in the 50s and 60s to the country we have today. So it's that we, we need to remember. Uh, and, and we should remember that, you know, uh, I've always, you know, and this is a bit controversial, but I've always thought that if the politician who declared war had to send his children first, that maybe there would be a second sober thought. <laughs> you know? And of course, I did wearing the uniform. The last person that wants conflict, armed conflict, are those who are serving our country. It's an interesting lesson. I know, notice this in recent history as well, with people like Colin Powell just springs to mind. The people who've been involved in conflicts are some of the most reluctant to do anything that might create another one. You know, if you think even of people like Neville Chamberlain in Britain, who wanted to avoid a war at all costs, well, that's probably because he'd lived through the horrors of the previous one. And it's, it's very noticeable, I always find, how veterans of, of conflicts understand it in a way that the rest of us don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think that tells you so much about the horrors of war. And I was just going to mention about I mean, when you said about the sacrifice of people who, who joined the or any of the services, but particularly the Air Force, that just the, the rates at which planes were shot down and that young men were killed, it's just astonishing by modern standards. If we had a war with those kind of rates today, it would be, uh, it's almost unthinkable. I don't know if you could speak a little to that. Well, you know, that's very true. And, and what, I, what I did want to mention too was, you know, especially the sound of the Merlin engines on Lancaster, which was the probably the state of our technology. Uh, I mean, it was uh, prior to the B-29 and the payload the B-29 had, it was the largest conventional payload that a bomber had uh, in the Allies. And, and it made a difference in the war. And the reason, uh, you know, if you were if you were sitting in Britain in June of 1940 when the Blitzkrieg in France fell quickly, or uh, 1942 when you had the... Uh, evacuation of the British Army by every small vessel that was available, uh, you didn't have a lot to be hopeful of. And uh, with the threat of invasion, uh, you know, just on the other side of the English Channel, and or if you were in the occupied lands up to that time, you didn't have much to base a hope on that you would prevail in the struggle, except that Bomber Command was the one element that was every night taking the fight to the enemy. And, and, and at least causing the Third Reich to defend themselves rather than to build offensive weapons so that their artillery pieces had to become anti-aircraft weapons and uh, their fighters had to become night fighters to defend the fatherland. And that made a big difference in, in uh, the outcome of the war. So the Lancaster contributed. And when, when you had five or 600 Lancasters and Halifaxes joining in a major assault into the fatherland, uh, they said that the earth actually shook as, as that 
a group of seven, 800 airplanes, could be 10 miles wide, 30 miles long, took off in the early evening and then uh, straggled home, you know, after one or two in the morning. But it made a, it made a huge, it gave uh, those in the occupied lands and it gave those who lived in the UK, give them hope that, that they would prevail. And of course, under the leadership of Winston Churchill, uh, you know, they, they did have hope and, and of course, they did prevail. And uh, so when you hear that airplane fly over now and, and you hear the noise of one, uh, I can only imagine what the noise was, uh, of, you know, of, of hundreds. But I do remember in 2014 when we flew to the UK and we did our first air show at Eastbourne on the 14th of August, 2014, and we had the two Lancasters, which are the last two flying in the world. First time a formation of Lancasters had occurred in 50 years with two Spitfires that there was 450,000 people on the beach and they were, they were just applauding and the sound, it was, it was music. You know, the the Merlins were music because it meant so much to them and and their, their freedom. But the sacrifice was enormous, absolutely enormous. And as I say, you know, 55,573 just in bomber command didn't survive. Uh, 7,377 Lancasters built, half didn't survive the war. The, the, the average mission of a Lancaster, the average life of a Lancaster was about seven missions. And, uh, and, and of course, the crew had to do 30 ops or, uh, to complete the tour. So, yeah, the cost was enormous. And uh, uh, and it did, you know, it, it played such a vital role in, in the morale and giving them hope. Uh, and, and uh you know, of course, the Battle of Britain and the fighters, uh, you know, Churchill said, you know, the fighters certainly were essential and, and so so much was owed to so few by so many. But he also said that the salvation, our salvation is the bombers. And, and it really was. And, and you can imagine the terror of being in downtown London when a V-1 or V-2 rocket or, or you know, a Henkel bomber, uh, which and of course, you know, it's it's it's. Uh, interesting how the bombing of London and I, and I I knew one of our members who has since passed uh, was a young man in the in the dockyards of London. His family lived near the dockyard, and they it was the dockyards were bombed when a Hinkle bomber got lost, and Hitler actually had a prohibition against bombing population centers, believe it or not. And this Hinkle got lost and bombed London, bombed the dockyards. And this gentleman lost his entire family except for one brother. Ended up in a hospital for four and a half months. Came when he came out of the hospital, there was no home, there was no no family, and uh, he joined the RAF and and, uh, and eventually came to Canada after the war. But uh, that was what uh, you know. And then of course uh, Churchill and Bomber Harris uh, retaliated uh, after that. But it was it was an accident uh, that led to that destruction. And those are the those are the fragilities of, in armed conflict because those are the unknowns that can happen. And but uh, you know it was a, it was a terrible time. Uh, I'm sure those six years were were absolutely terrible in Europe, and and all because one crazed uh, organization came to power, and maybe in the seeds of the Treaty of Versailles, you know, led to the to the World War II. But but Canada. You know, a young country of nine million people, uh, part of the Commonwealth. When we went to, when we went into that war, uh, by the end of the war, we had the, uh, the fourth, the third largest air force and the fourth largest navy. 
for a country of 9 million people. We punched so far above our weight. I know some of the most famous squadrons during the Battle of Britain. I mean, it was Douglas Barter's a famous pilot who lost his legs and was still managed to be one of the, the most well-known and characterful pilots of the, of the Second World War. His squadron was of Canadians, and uh, I grew up reading the various biographies of him and, and the, how he kind of pulled that group of men together who actually was struggling, I believe, when he first sort of came to that squadron because they, they'd been through such terrible kind of hardships that they really weren't um, particularly enthusiastic about suddenly having a squadron leader who they thought could fly. <laughs> Uh, but it's really astonishing. There's a fantastic website. I don't know if you've seen it. I think it's called bombsite.org, and it plots every bomb dropped on London during the Blitz. And when you look at it, you can't put a pin between the bombs. Um, I was saying to Joel before we came on, my mother grew up in London during the Blitz. She lived far enough in North London that she wasn't evacuated. But a bomb fell on their neighbor's house, but it blew their house to pieces. And you can see that on the map, and boy, that brings it home to you. <laughs> uh, and it's a story I kind of grew up with hearing about, you know, the, the day the, the bomb fell on the house kind of thing. And they had to go and live with parents for a year while the house was rebuilt and all this kind of stuff. But to actually kind of see it there, you know, to see the evidence of that story that I've heard kind of passed down as a child is uh, really makes an impact. Absolutely. It, it, you know, we uh, the hardest part of, uh, you know, one of the hardest parts of... Uh, why 21 years at the museum has been that 21 years ago we had so many of the actual veterans of that generation and of that conflict that were active members with us perhaps you know in their 60s at that time and then we've lost so many of them uh, in 2006 uh, we were able to take four uh, Lancaster veterans uh, and take them to Oshkosh of course the largest uh, air show in North America every third week or last week of July every year in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And they'd never been to Oshkosh. And so we took them in the lake. And uh, th at that time, they were all uh, in their probably early 80s. And uh, uh, many of them had never talked about their service or anything. And on the Saturday, we were going to have a large gathering called Warbirds in Review. And they were all to bring a story or an artifact or something from one of their missions. And uh, and we were going to have reenactors, and the Lank was going to be there. And we had about 3,000 people around them. And they all brought a, a story or a mission uh, about one of their missions. And we affectionately called them the kids. And uh, so we rented a house for them, and I was kind of overseeing them. And I had, I'd pick them up every morning. And, of course, for us, it was a working trip because we were doing tours through the Lancaster, and we had a retail store. So... It was a very much a business enterprise for us as well. And they were, uh, they, they would not, if we were open at 8 o'clock, they wanted to be there. If we were not going to dinner until 7 o'clock, they stayed till 7 o'clock. There was no way they were going to get any special treatment or allow themselves to be treated specially. But what was really interesting was that to, to observe them, you know, of course, we'd say, have the kids been fed? Have the, you know, have the kids been, you know, and I took them all around. But what was really interesting was their, their cadence picked up. Uh, they probably lost 20 years in their, in, you know, in their, in their walk. They were faster. They were engaged. They were enthusiastic. And, and, and in many cases, I would have loved to have been a little bird in their house because 
I'm sure that they talked about things they hadn't talked about in years. But they all talked about a, a different part of the, the war. And whether it was uh, one fellow who did, uh, Chris Parr, who did 58 missions starting in Hamptons, finishing in Lancasters, and the difference between a mission in 1941 in Hamptons versus a mission in 1944 with Lancasters, or whether it was uh, Dennis from uh, St. Catharines, a Canadian, who uh, on his 15th mission, uh, of course, it was a bad omen if the airplane you flew wasn't serviceable or went U.S. on taxi, which happened to him. And so they had to wait for a backup airplane. They're 45 minutes behind the main packet going into the in, into Berlin. And it's like going in there after you've already hit the bee's nest and every bee is alive. And then they had to fly in. And then as they get to 15,000 feet and they're trying to climb to 25, the second stage supercharger fails and they have to stay low. So they're going in after the main strike at a lower altitude where all the odds are against them of ever getting home. And yet they, they did. Uh, and they talked about that or, or whether, uh, you know, it was just uh, uh, different stories, different events. But what was interesting was that one, uh, Eric Grove, who, who was on his fifth mission in Lancaster uh, in over Berlin and got hit by night fighters and, uh, and of course, the night fighters were trying what what they would do sometimes is try to hit your armament and, and expose your armament in your airplane. And uh, so he lost two of his crew on the run in uh, that way. And uh, he eventually called a bailout uh, over the target area. And they were those that did bail out and survive were taken prisoner of war and eventually exchanged at the end of the war. But here he was now in 2006 still questioning his decision to call a bailout or whether he could have maybe nursed the airplane home. I don't think there was any way he could ever nurse the airplane home, but it was still something he was, did, did he make the right decision as captain of the airplane? And, and so to, to see that uh, interpersonal struggle, uh, it was, it was fascinating that, you know, they, they went through a lot and, uh, and, and it's that kind of, Thing we, you know, that's the human side. You know, you see the in conflict, you see the you see the numbers, you see the losses, you see the strategies and uh, the successful campaigns and the failed campaigns. But but it's the human side uh, of armed conflict that that is the costly side. And so it was just an honor to be to be able to. First of all, they had some fun because they'd never been to Oshkosh before. And and when we came back, uh, they wrote an article. The kids go to Oshkosh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but and of course they're all gone. They're all gone now. So that's the hard part about our business is is to be to know these gentlemen and, and these ladies and gentlemen, and then uh, you see they have to say goodbye to them. Because you mentioned about the veteran stories, and I think that really is what the museum is about. It's about preserving these accounts and the history of those who did the heavy lifting of, of our wars. I myself, I'm a father to two young kids and making sure that they're aware of this legacy and to have that appreciation of Canada as it is today is important to me. And I'm wondering if maybe you can touch upon what the museum's ideas are to preserve these stories, especially because the veterans are dying, they're passing on. We're just reaching a, a point where those firsthand accounts are no longer able to be told. And I think we can all agree it's very important for the younger generation, the generations to come, to be able to access those stories. And why don't you maybe just tell us uh, and our listeners what the 
Warplay Museum is doing to, to kind of keep that history alive for generations to come? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, Joel. And you know, uh, the COVID uh, nineteen pandemic, uh, as challenging as it has been, and it has been because our gross loss in revenues of approaching three million dollars on a five million dollar budget, uh, so it's had a big impact. But uh, but the net loss, thankfully, has been a lot less than that, and we will survive and we will get through this. And in comparison to what the generation we're talking about went through, this is nothing, <laughs> you know. But uh, so put it in context, and, and that that. In, but uh, there has been silver linings in in our challenges, and one of them is, and we've been talking about this uh, for for quite a while actually, because there is a sunset uh, clause on these airplanes. There will be a time when you know when they won't be able to fly. Uh, whether it's uh, the fact that you can't get ab gas anymore, uh, you can't run a Merlin engine on an environmentally friendly alternate fuel, um, you know, that could be it. Or whether it's, uh, you know, fatigue in airframes, lack of parts. How do we, how do we keep that heritage uh, alive? How do we teach young and new Canadians that? And, and vir- the virtual uh, experience, of course, is where these young people are now. I mean, they're, they're in the virt- virtual reality. Uh, they spend a, a good part of their life in virtual reality. And so what we've done is we've made a number of strides. Our education department, uh, where we used to have uh, museums within an hour and a half of, of Hamilton come from September to June to the museum on Monday to Friday. We might have four or five grade six classes, a couple of grade 10 classes, and we would spend the day and teach them. And now we've gone virtual. And uh, now anywhere in the world can can plug into a live session at the museum uh, where we teach and, and we and it could be a live question and answer period uh, with people at the museum with the education department or we've gone virtual in terms of putting our uh, our programs out online. The other thing we're doing now is uh, we're also doing uh, we're working in a virtual. Uh, there are many, many of your children and my children are never going to fly a Lancaster, never going to go for a ride in a Lancaster or a B-25 or a PBY or any of our airplanes. But virtually they can. Virtually they can experience everything. And so that we're, we're really starting to realize that uh, our future, uh, you know, and I'm talking long-range future, is in the virtual reality realm. And that, that we can tell the stories, that they can... They can actually even do interviews with uh, with veterans in a virtual setting, uh, veterans that are no longer with us, but whose stories have been captured, and uh, and personas have been captured, and so we're we're doing a lot of work in that area. We realize that that is the future of the museum uh, down the road, and uh, you know maybe twenty twenty thirty five and beyond. Uh, that maybe that may be what it is, you know, but but. The, the material, the, the stories, the personal stories, and the uh, the artifacts and the hardware and the airplanes will not be lost. The stories about them will not be lost, or the or the people that flew them. So it's that's a, that's a silver lining in the COVID nineteen pandemic because although we had that on our radar screen, it's all been pushed ahead now. You mentioned that uh, it's marvelous to hear that those things, and you. Are confident you can come through this crisis, but is there anything that people, our listeners, can do to help the museum at this time to help you get through this? 
Roland, that's a great question. Well, let me put it this way. <laughs> if there's anybody out there listening to this podcast who has heard our airplanes, seen our museum, visited our museum, uh, and ever thought of helping us, this is the year to help us for sure. Uh, you know, if you come to the, you know, come to our gift store. We are open Wednesday to Sunday, 10 to 4. Uh, we have a, a wonderful collection of, uh, of items in our gift store. We're online as well. You can buy things online. We have a wonderful 2021 calendar that we just finished. It's called Lancaster and Friends, and it's pictures of the Lancaster with many of the airplanes it's flown with uh, from, uh, you know, from B-17s to B-29 to fighters, uh, Spitfires, Hurricanes to mos- uh, Mosquito. Uh, it's a, just a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful calendar and uh you can buy that online uh of course to all our members we've already sent it out with an appeal letter so if you've ever thought of of helping us and you know for various reasons hadn't done it yet boy this is the year to do it uh we could really <laughs> so thank you for that question and uh you know this remembrance day uh we're going to fly over uh the golden horseshoe we're going to we're going to do hamilton and burlington uh we're going to do Brantford. We're going to do uh, uh, Caledonia uh, and Hagersville and Jarvis and uh, Dunville and Cayuga, Niagara Falls, uh, uh, obviously deep, uh, Stony Creek and, and points towards St. Catharines. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to do it proudly as because this year normally we would have 2,500 to 3,000 people at a live Remembrance Day ceremony. Uh, and, this year that's not possible so we're going to do a virtual ceremony on CACH at 10 30 to 11 30 much as which has been recorded already but the actual Lancaster will fly so pray for good weather for next Wednesday and uh and if you look if you know if you're in Burlington and you look up and you see us uh if you're kind enough to think about us and drop us a note and maybe a little bit of support that would be that would be greatly greatly appreciated well, I think that's where we're going to end the interview for today. But I want to thank you, Dave, for uh, for coming on and, and sharing those stories and the great work that you guys are doing over at the at the museum. Um, we 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 hope that uh, that our listeners do find a way to contribute. And as I say, it's an honor for us all at the museum to be part of preserving this rich Canadian aviation legacy and heritage. Absolutely, unless we forget. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. 
My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.